All right, guys, I'll see you later. Go that way. Where's Dorothy? Okay. Thank you. So today we're in Mark 4. We're moving forward. I, uh, I decided to put aside the three more sermons I had from Mark 3 and, um, and move forward to Mark 4. Let's, let's go ahead and read this together. So the title today is Why Jesus Wants to Terrify and Infuriate You. Sounds like an upper, right? Yeah. Mark 4, verses 1 to 20 says this. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables and in his teaching said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. He was scattering the seed and some fell along the path and the birds came in and ate it up. Some fell in rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, but... When the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they were withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants, so that they did not bear grain. And still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and grew and produced a crop, multiplying thirty, sixty, even a hundred times. Then Jesus said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they may turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seeds that falls along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seed sown among thorns, hear the word. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires of— other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop 30, 60, or even 100 times what was sown. When I was in eighth grade, I had a basketball coach who will go nameless, because I'm about to speak of him negatively. And he decided fairly early on in his coaching experience with me that I was never really going to amount to much of a basketball player. And so he kind of treated me that way. And I could just tell every time I interacted with him that he just didn't think I was going to amount to much of a basketball player. In fact, it, it got so petty that at one point we were doing this, this drill called the five-man weave. Anybody do the five-man weave growing up playing basketball? Essentially, you got five people and the ball never touches the ground. Nobody travels. You get all the way down the court, passing back and forth and weaving around. And the last pass is right under the basket. You catch it and you just shoot a layup and that's it. And it just kind of runs seamlessly like that round and round and round. And I was coming down and I'm left-handed. And it usually is designed to end on the right-hand side because everybody else is right-handed and they're lazy. And so— I catch the ball, and I, you know, I take my two steps, but I'm coming, I'm, 
I'm in eighth grade, okay? I'm coming a little faster. When I lay it up, it hits the backboard and it kind of flies off past the basket and doesn't go in. And from the other side of the gym, he yells, God damn you, Nikki. Yeah, nice guy. Um, Now, there's another time when I was 19. I promise this relates to Mark IV. Um, I was 19 and I went to something in New York City called the New York School of Urban Mission. It was between my fall semester and spring semester in college. We went down for about a week and we worked in like soup kitchens and stuff like that with the urban poor, trying to feed people, help convince them to get back in the rehab program and stuff like that. And one of the days we worked at a soup kitchen in the South Bronx that was run by this guy named Curly. Now that was an ironic name because he was bald as Mr. Clean. And they, they could have just as ironically named the guy Cuddly because he was kind of a stern fellow and bald as Mr. Clean with big muscles. You can imagine he was a bit imposing to 150 pound college sophomore. Um, and so uh, he gave the sort of spiel to what we were going to do that day and we started doing serving tables and, and, and waiting on these folks that were mostly homeless or in need of uh, food. And it was, you know, really cold winter and we were serving soup. It was a cool thing. And so there were, you know, a couple hundred people came through in a couple hours. And so we'd bring out the food and we'd clean up after them. And there was this one point where I'd gone over this table and there was nobody over in this little area. And I was cleaning up this table. And um, all around the room, and I have no idea why this is the case, but all around the room there was a, there was a mirror that went from about this high to about this high. About, it was about three feet in length and it went all the way around the room. And as I was wiping up this table, as I got to the end, I kind of looked up at myself in the mirror, Right? And so I start, go, I start going over the trash can, and Curly intercepts me, okay? And, um, and, and I have no idea what he's on about, because he's kind of a picky fellow. And he sticks his finger in my chest, and this is basically what he said to me. He said, you are the most self-absorbed, narcissistic, self-centered, self-flattering, self-worshipping idolater I have ever met. You, you can't even take your eyes off yourself long enough to serve the poorest of the poor, and you prance around here like you're this committed, sacrificial Christian when you're really just looking for another opportunity to fawn over yourself and your ridiculous reflection in the mirrors around this room. Now, would you get to serving the people who are coming here? That was fun. Now, there's, there, now, let me, here's, here's why I tell you those two stories. Those two stories could not be more different. They couldn't be more different. Because the first one was a man who laid on me a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know what? I never really amounted to much of a basketball player. And it was partly the help of that coach. Partly the help that I'm not a very good athlete. But partly the help of that coach. Um, now, I'm not saying I'm not still a little self-centered. But that was not the effect of Cur- what Curly did to me. Um, what Curly did is what's called a self-defeating prophecy. That is, when you speak the truth really hard, in a very hard way to somebody, and it actually is for their good. The, the, there's a, now, there's a key difference between those two. A self-fulfilling prophecy is a prophecy that wouldn't have been true if you left things alone. It's like, a, it's like a kid from a poor income family that you're like, that you tell is never going to amount to anything. He's probably going to become a gang member and fall into crime or whatever. Well, he might just be from a blue collar family. He would have done fine in school. He might have just done fine. But if you make him feel terrible about himself long enough, maybe he will. It wouldn't have been true. The repetitive prophecy made it true. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. A self-defeating prophecy is something that was already true. You pointed it out that it was true. The warning allowed the person to make it not true. 
And it's very, 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 very important to have that distinction crystal clear in your mind when you come to the Bible. Because every divine confrontation in the Bible is the second category. And we are so terrified in our modern culture of the first category that we won't let anybody speak to us in any hard way at all. We just go, who the heck do you think you are talking to me like that? Maybe you should go look in the mirror. And we're, we're so afraid that if we listen to somebody's rebuke, that that negativity is going to get in us, and it's going it's to control us, and then we're eventually going to be what they say we are, and we're not that now because we're all fantastic, and we just cannot allow this negativity to control us. Therefore, we will create an uber-positive culture where nobody says anything bad about anybody at any time ever, and you don't even compete in sports programs. I mean, I just can't wait till the NFL takes that on. They don't, there's no points. It's NFL games. No points, right? We don't want to make the fans feel bad or the players, right? And the reason this is important is because the whole point of the parable of the sower, the way Mark tells it here, is to terrify you and to infuriate you. And if you don't, and if you, if you don't think that, it's because you just assumed you were the last kind of seed because you're so self-assured. And so, of course, well, who cares what happens to everybody else? I'm going to be the 60 times one. It, aren't I humble? I didn't say I was the 100. You know? Um, but if, if you listened and you didn't already assume you were the fruitful seed, that, this would make you mad. It's designed to make you mad. That's the whole point. And so the basic, just I want to get across today from this section in chapter 4, is that Jesus' love and his glory is displayed in his willingness to terrorize and infuriate us. Now, that's not the only way his glory is displayed. His glory is displayed in many other ways. This is just one of them. But one of the ways his glory and love is displayed to us is in his willingness and in his practice of terrorizing and infuriating us. And by terrorize there, I don't mean like trying to blow us up. I mean putting fear into our hearts for some reason. So here's, here's what I'm going to do. Chapter 4 is going to be two weeks. This week I want to talk about the theme. Next week I'm going to talk about the topics. So next week will be like, okay, if this is this soil and that's that soil and here's this light and lamp and what that means and so on. That's next week. This week is why, why does it play out this way? Because you might say, well, why, Nick, why would you say that? That's just, you just want it. You're just trying to be provocative and, and make us think you're strange. No, no, look at the parable. I mean, if you look at the parable, what happens to three quarters of the people referred to in this parable? They're lost. Three quarters of the people in this parable are lost. That's not good odds. If I told you, you're going to go out today and three quarters of you, something awful was going to happen to you, you'd probably stay here for lunch. You know? You'd be like, I'm not taking 25 percent. I don't want those odds. That's kind of stinky odds. And um, if, if you were not already self-assured when you listened to what Jesus said, I mean, that doesn't make you mad. I mean, look at this. Je Jesus, Jesus told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, meaning these disciples in close. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that, causal, they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. 
So, you see, you see, that's a little disturbing because why do most of us believe Jesus pranced around and told parables? Most of us believe the reason he did that was to reach the common man, right? You know, he didn't speak to the intellectual classes. He spoke to the common man. He took complex ideas and he put them in simple stories and he told them to peasants and farmers and all kinds of different people. The most intelligent people could understand him just like everybody else. Totally egalitarian, totally democratic, totally reached everybody, right? That's, what, that's why he spoke in parables. Well, Jesus just said the opposite. He just explicitly said that one of the reasons he speaks in parables is to conceal something, to keep something secret, to make something non-public. And he said, otherwise, they might come and be forgiven. So it sounds kind of like if he did release the information, there are some people who would believe and be forgiven, and that's why he's not releasing the information. That doesn't sound like nice Jesus, does it? That's not nice Jesus. And here's the, the deal with Mark's gospel. Chapter 4 is all the parables there are. Mark, in the whole gospel of Mark, there's only four parables. This is the longest. The other three are about two verses long, and then we're done. There's no more. This isn't Matthew. This isn't Luke. We're done. That's all the parables there are. This is the significance of the parable in Jesus' ministry to Mark. Period. Now, if you even consider the possibility of caring about somebody on the outside, and you know they have at least a three-quarter chance of going down, and Jesus is concealing something so that they won't believe and be forgiven, that's going to make you a little angry, doesn't it? And if you believe he's right, that would be a little— that would be a little scary. Because even if you rule out, even if you say, well, look, I already believe, and I'm already halfway along, well, then you're—well, now your odds have really improved. Now you're 50-50. Right? That's it. Because you can't get beyond the third category, which is the cares of life eventually choke it out, right? You're not dead. There are still cares in your life. So you could at least still fall prey to the third one, no matter where you are. Right? Listen, I don't do anything with 50-50 odds, for the most part, that matters. Now, the first thing we should recognize is there's probably something more going on here than just Jesus being nasty. Okay? For a couple of reasons. The first is, the whole Gospel of Mark up until this point has been very clear that Jesus has come to, to reach everybody with the Gospel. Everything has been absolutely public, simple, and clear. And the category so far has been the Gospel, right? The, the news that the kingdom of God is near, that it has come, that we are to repent and believe the gospel and turn to God for salvation. And this is being preached widely to everybody, accompanied by miracles in a very profound way, right? So this is weird. This is, this is a 180. This is a, your GPS just took a U-turn, okay? That's what this is. And so we should go, what the heck is going on? And then one of the things we also should recognize is just a few verses later— it explicitly says Jesus is very interested in the masses understanding what he's saying. Which means if we take that passage in the early part of chapter 4 strictly literally, then it's, it gets contradicted within the chapter. Now listen, I can understand if people believe there are contradictions in the Bible, and you know, one's in this book, one's in that book, you know, but I'm sorry, Mark is not that stupid. When you believe that there's a biblical contradiction and the contradictions are on the same page, 
a little self-doubtfulness could be humble, right? Because it explicitly says a few verses later, with many similar parables, Jesus spoke to the, the words to them, meaning all the people, as much as they could understand, but he did not say anything to them without using a parable, but when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. There is a difference, apparently, in how Jesus is teaching between what Jesus calls the gospel and what he calls the secret. Right? The, the word mysterion, or that we get our word mystery from in Greek, really is less about mystery as about secret. That's why the ancient mystery religions, they weren't about ideas that were hard to comprehend. They were about ideas that were secret, right? And so th the idea is, is Jesus is saying there's a body of knowledge that's secret that isn't the gospel. Now, what is it? It's apparently how the gospel works. And it seems like what Jesus is saying here is, you can't really wade waist-deep into how the gospel works until after you generally believe the gospel in its simplest form. And, and think about it this way. How are you going to do with the concepts of a divine God-man when you haven't bought into the basic idea that God is good, we are bad, and we should turn to him? You see? What Jesus is essentially saying is, until you believe the gospel, the repent and turn to God, that simple idea that we're not good, God is good, and if we want to be right with God and in his kingdom, we should release our, our self-idolatry, this idea that we're fantastic, and turn to God who is great and glorious. If, you, if we can't even accept that starting point, what, what Jesus is saying is, you can't metabolize anything else beyond that. Right? If, if, if you have a baby in a hospital and it won't take milk, you don't go, well, let's get some steak. Maybe he'll take that at two days old. You don't do that. You, you have to get something simpler yet. You have to be like, well, what's simpler than milk? Let's give him an IV or something. Or just say, like, just w liquid, right? That's what you have to do. You have to go simpler, not more complicated. So what Jesus is saying is he's saying, listen, there's two levels here and there's nothing secretive about the second level because anybody who comes in gets to hear it. Remember, it's not just the 12 apostles who hear this. It's everybody who stands to stay after school and hear about the parables being explained. There's nothing exclusive about the group at all. It's the apostles and everybody who is with him. He said that too. So then why does he say it like that then? Why does he say I'm doing this so that they will be ever hearing but never perceiving, ever looking but never really seeing. Otherwise, they might repent and be saved. Why would he say it that way? And I think the critical issue here is that Jesus' theme in all of chapter 4 is how we listen. That essentially the practical thing that separates out humanity is not good people and bad people. But according to Jesus, it's how we choose to listen to the gospel. Whether or not we're receptive to it, or whether or not we're, we stand as a critic of it. That's the difference. Lewis said it, Lewis said it this way in the Screwtable Letters. He says, it is our tendency to be critics— sorry, I, I'm not with it. Um, it's our tendency to be critics, critics when God would have us be pupils. Those are two very different statuses. And listen, we live in an age where everybody fancies themselves a critic— Right? I mean, you should hear, you should hear me talk about economics. How much do I know about economics? 
right? I mean, you should hear people talk like they know something about things when they just heard somebody smart on NPR say something or on some talk radio station or on some news channel or they read some page somewhere and that person seems smart enough so if I say that means I'm smart and we talk about subjects we know nothing about their inner workings as though we're brilliant because we live in an age where everything is just talk. I mean, if you look at any news channel, what happens? You get five minutes of news and then there's like four talking heads about it. Blah, 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 blah. I mean, just, in, I mean, in the, and we watch it. I mean, MSNBC, Fox, CNN, all these, they, they would not be able to stay in business if nobody watched them. But yet this is what they do. They go, yeah, so somebody, um, somebody important is getting married. Let's, let's have eight people on. One person thinking they'll be married forever, of course, because they're in love. One person thinking that they'll get divorced in three weeks. And one person saying that she got a really big ring. And then let's switch immediately over to the Middle East like it's the same level of importance and have five people who have no military background and have never even been there talk about whether or not we're going to make any progress. Because we know everybody who's watching wants us to say something and these three people will say something like that. And everybody will all feel more self-assured at the end of the day and people who watch MSNBC will hate their neighbors who watch Fox and vice versa. Right? That's the age in which we live. Everybody fancies himself a critic about everything. We know jack about most things, and one of the things we know virtually nothing about is the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, listen, you don't know squat about this. <laughs> you can't see it. You can't touch it. You can't feel it. There's no way you can tactually perceive it. You can't study it scientifically for the most part. And so what are you going to do? You are dependent on revelation. You're dependent on me telling you, and if you won't buy into the first sentence, repent and turn to God, what makes you think you're going to work over in your mind as you plow your field about the parable of the sower? Right? So, let me go over these two things kind of fast. Firstly, Jesus' glory in, in being terrifyingly inspiring. This parable is designed to be terrifying and inspiring at the same time. Double motivation. We kind of believe right now that you should only motivate people positively. That's very silly. I can't get into why it's silly now psychologically. It's very silly. Right? You need both forward propulsion and lines on the road to drive carefully. N negative, negative stimuli and positive stimuli is meant to be balanced in the formation of human beings. All human beings, right? And so Jesus comes in and he— intentionally terrifies us and intentionally inspires us. He intentionally terrifies us with only one out of four making it. And on two of these, there are two things that, if we have any self-awareness at all, we know they will endanger our faith. If you don't believe persecutions and troubles will endanger your faith like the second seed, listen, you're just living in a la-la land. If you believe in Jesus— and you're sitting there, and you just don't believe persecution and trouble could create a faith crisis for you that could cause you to be like a plant that grows up and then withers because it doesn't have enough rootedness. I don't know what to tell you. I just want to shake you. Right? I mean, I, I, I think we can hope devoutly that when trouble comes and when persecution comes, God will give us the grace in the moment when we lean on him to live— in trouble and persecution. But let's not be cavalier about the idea that we're going to be singing just as I am while we're being burned alive. 
know what I'm saying? Or even when you lose your job. Because you said the wrong thing or something. Or because your conscience makes you morally unwilling to do a procedure or something like that. I would be very surprised if in the next 20 years, some of us at least don't find ourselves, I don't find myself in prison for something I say because I've offended some new law that allows for the free freedom of speech, but not really, or for somebody, some of us in the medical profession, if we say based on conscience, listen, I can't do that, well then you can't work in the medical profession. Bye. I would not be surprised if that is coming down the pike in the next 20 years for a bunch of us. There are people in this city that buy the Christian or get the Christian businessman's thing so that they can give their business to Christians. Listen, the day is coming when um, getting business will mean keeping your faith secret because there will be people who won't go to you if they know you're a Christian because Christians are insane. Um, and, if, and if we don't believe also that the cares of the world and the things that we want and our desires for other things can't choke out the fruitfulness of our faith so that, that we still keep the name Christian, but there's no vitality left to it at all. We don't love our neighbors. We don't love people different than us. We're not sharing the gospel with people around us. We're, we're not really loving our families or self-sacrificing. I, that's all gone, but we really just pursue the stuff we want. We keep the name Christian, but those desires and, and, and cares of the Lord have really choked out all the life. If we don't think that can happen to us. Listen, six months— there isn't one person in this room who is more than six months from that. Not one. Not me, not you, not anybody that is safe from losing their vitality and becoming unfruitful and becoming a Christian in name only and there being no kernel to speak of for their life when it's over. None of us are, right? And that should terrify us. But here's the other thing, too, is it's supposed to be an inspiring story because um, on a normal good agricultural year in first century Palestine, the standard crop yield on grain was about 7.5%. That's what most of the commentators seem to be est estimating it at. Um, R.K. McIver um, said a 30-fold yield was not only exceptional, but miraculous, right? Now, don't, don't um, confuse McIver with—they're different people, so— I do miss the mullet. Um, so not, not only um, is this parable supposed to be terrifying, but think about this. 30, 60, or 100 times what was sown, right? So what Jesus is saying is, for, for those who hear it and combine it with faith and begin to live it out and they produce the fruit that comes with faith, th the, the productivity of that in terms of the kingdom of God, is exponential. The payoff for even the minimal person who just makes it is like 30-fold, which is miraculous. You live the most non-amazing but real vital Christian life. No matter how unassuming your gifts are or how infrequently you travel or sacrifice, but if you just day in and day out serve Jesus by serving others and loving others— and living for the kingdom and for the gospel, your life cannot help but yield a miraculous level of output spiritually. And it might be 60-fold. It might be 100-fold. 
I mean, if I told you I was going to give you a 100-pound bag of seeds, I said, listen, only three of these seeds are going to actually grow. <laughs> 10,000 seeds, only three of them are going to grow. But listen, the ones that grow will produce a million. Would you go out and would you plant every last seed of that bag? If you were a farmer, of course you would. You'd go out there as fast as you could. And so what Jesus is saying is he's saying, yeah, listen, the world as it is in terms of how the word penetrates us is terrifying. So therefore, listen, right? How does he start the parable? Listen to this. Listen. Hear. Right? Not just take it in, but take it in. Right? And then at the end, what does he say? To the person who has ears to hear. Right? It's pretty—is it obvious that that should be taken non-literally? Right? Otherwise, he'd have a cape that said Captain Obvious across the chest, Right? Like, he who has, has the ability and—see, this is about willingness, not ability. He's saying, to the person who is willing to listen and heed, do it! Do it! And so the rest of this infuriating stuff is a taunt for our own good. Um, part of the context here, then, is where does this come from? right? It's a quotation. If you look in your Bible, there's a little footnote. It says where it comes from the Old Testament. So Jesus isn't just making this up. He's taking it from somewhere. It's from Isaiah 6, which is a fairly well-known passage, right? Where Isaiah comes into the temple and God shows up. And his glory can actually be seen. And Isaiah can actually see angels. And God is on his throne. And what does Isaiah do? He's like, okay, I think I'm about to die. This is, this is, my life flashing in before my eyes, I'm about to be disintegrated by the glory of God. Right? And um, he says, Woe is me, I'm ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Right? I'm going to die. And then what happens? So this angel comes and takes a coal and puts it on his lips, and God says, Okay, your sins have been atoned for. I have provided salvation for you. And then God says, like, like there's no audience. He goes, Now, I'm looking for somebody to speak on my behalf. Who should I send? Hmm. Is there anybody here? And Isaiah's like, me! Right? And what does he get to say? What is, right? I get to be the prophet. I get to go tell people God's truth. Well, what do you get to tell them? Here's what you get to tell them, Isaiah. He says, go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the hearts of this people callous. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Now think about that. It's public. You see how it's a taunt? You see, what he's saying is, is he's saying, Isaiah, go out there and basically proclaim their destruction. Now, here's what's going to happen. For some people, it will make them angry at you, and it will calcify their, their restraint against you, and it will make them even more self-condemned and push them even, even further. But for some people, this is the last-ditch effort that will wake them up. For some of them, when you say, yeah, you've got eyes, but you don't see. You've got ears, but you don't hear. The whole kingdom of God is completely imperceptible to you. You are just in a go-kart going downhill, you know, towards a barrel full of C5. I mean, you're, it's, you're done, okay? You're going down. Um, that's all there is to it. I mean, if somebody were to hear that and go, what if that's true? What would happen, right? 
something could happen. Now, you might say, well, I don't know, Nick. I think you just don't want that passage to say what it says. But here's what I would say. Jesus does this a lot if we have eyes to see it, where he gets in people's face really bad and he just reads them the right act. It's very condemning. And then usually it's accompanied by some kind of sort of cryptic saying that if you really thought about, it would really enlighten you on something. And then a very kind invitation. Why? Because that is the last ditch effort for people who are lost in stubbornness. Which goes back to Jesus' point, how we hear. Why won't these people believe in Jesus? What Mark is saying, Jesus is saying, is plainly, they won't hear. The issue here is stubbornness, which is, of course, the Old Testament prophetic theme of the people of Israel, right? The Jews would not listen. And are the Jews different from us? No, they were selected from humanity because they're typical human beings, right? They're typical human beings. They do what human beings do. Complain. They're stubborn. They don't listen, right? That's what Jews did, whole testament. Because, and why did God choose them? So we could identify with them. They're just like us. And so Jesus then, what is he? He's second Isaiah. He's the newer and truer Isaiah coming to God's people before a second and greater judgment, the destruction of the temple and the dispersion of all God's people, which was going to come just 30 years later, right? And so he's the second Isaiah. He takes this passage. He, he speaks it to them. And he's saying, listen, you are just like the people of Israel before they went into exile the first time. After 450 years of absolute disobedience, doing whatever you wanted, not listening, you are just like them. And I am like the second Isaiah coming to you to tell you, don't do that. Don't ride this all the way to the ground. Right? And so he does this in, um, I, I don't have time for any of this stuff. So, so for example, in Matthew, he does this. Ma so re read Matthew 11. He comes and he goes, woe to Bethsaida, Chorazin, and Capernaum. He's like, you guys think that you're great? You're all going to hell, basically is what he says, right? You're all going to hell. And they're like, What? Because those were the cities that Jesus did most of his ministry in. They thought they were favored. He's like, you're all going to hell. And they're like, what? And then, he's, and then he gives this cryptic statement about the son and the father. And then he says, this is, this is three verses later. This is what he says. Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That, that is one of Jesus' most tender invitations to anybody. And who does he give it to? The people he just ripped the guts out of with a you're all going to hell speech. That's Jesus. Jesus has a full and absolutely complete personality. Absolutely complete personality. And so he can rip into you and scare just the living daylights out of you and then come right after that and say, just, just let it go. Just let it go and come to me. All you have to do is repent. All you have to do is come. All you have to do is hear and listen and believe. That's all you got to do, right? He does the same thing in Matthew 23. We think of Matthew 23 as his no holes barred scathing attack on all the Pharisees. You're all going to hell, right? That's what he's— and these are the religious people, so we like that, right? Woe to you, you teachers of the law, Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's rotting corpses, right? That's a, is that a compliment? That's not a compliment, right? 
In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. And he goes on a little bit after this. He says, all of you, how can you expect to escape the damnation of hell? He just comes right out and says it to them. And they're like, I don't think we like you. <laughs> right? But then this is how he ends that passage. And we read, over, we read over it because it says Jerusalem, but he's speaking about the whole Jewish people with these Pharisees as their head. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone the people sent to you, how often I have longed to gather you, gather your children together as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings. You think, have you ever seen that? I grew up on a farm. I've seen that. I've seen the little yellow chicks, totally helpless. If they're not warm, they die in about 20 minutes. I mean, they're just so fragile. And the hen just kind of— And this is one of the most maternal, feminine, nurturing, motherly illustrations used in the whole New Testament. And Jesus is applying it to these absolutely stubborn people who have a history of killing everybody that speaks for God, really, thinking they're totally righteous in, in God's best plan. And it's—and he says— you guys, come to me. I'll be like a mother hen. I will gather all the children of Israel under me, and I will protect you, and I will love you, and I will save you. Just come, right? This, I'm, I'm telling you, you read the Bible, this is a pattern with Jesus, right? And so I would call this therapeutic infuriation. And it is, now here's the thing, I'm not inviting you to go out and do this, Okay? I'm not inviting you to go out and do this. What I'm saying is, is that this is the true loving last-ditch effort for those that are in the process of being lost and self-damned to actually give the prophecy of damnation, but not as a self-fulfilling prophecy, but as a self-defeating prophecy. You see the difference? The act of declaring their damnation is itself an act of love because it is his last-ditch effort to wake them up to their self-deception and to open their minds to their true state and to encourage them to consider the basic premise of the gospel, that they are not only sinful in their actions, but they're sinful in their thinking. And so they're totally self-deceived. And so listening to themselves doesn't help. They need a revelation voice from the outside, a voice of God to tell them something. And you see, it's not reverse psychology because Jesus isn't saying something that's not true to get people to do something that he wants. He's just telling the truth. It's not manipulative at all. It's kind. Let me end with this. Um, one of the things I, I like doing is watching movies with my kids. And I'm glad the girls aren't here because I'm going to use them as separate examples. My, my five-year-old is still basically in the deal where if somebody is ugly and dark and talks mean, they're probably a villain. And if somebody is nice and bright and has pretty white hair or is blonde or something, they're a hero. Okay, that's basically how she understands film. And um, that's basically what Disney has dumbed down to. Here's what I do. Go and, and Google, and Google um, beautiful villains— it will bring up the top 30 Disney villains. And you know who the two most beautiful villains are? Besides Gaston, he's an outlier. 
Because with Gaston, you know what they did? They took features that were supposed to be handsome, and they created a handsome man that no actual woman would find deeply attractive. That's what they did. So that, so that when the beast turned into a guy, he would be the cute one. So Gaston was the handsome man that nobody thought was handsome. Right? That's what they did there. Nobody actually thinks, you talk to a girl, they, they all prefer the beast turned back into a human to Gaston. All of them. But Gaston is supposed to be the absolute most beautiful man ever. In fact, apparently in the French version, this is, I find this interesting, maybe you don't. Apparently in the, in the French version, when Gaston dies, he turns into the beast. And when the beast is freed, he turns into Gaston, a mirror replica. And Belle, at that point, questions whether it would have been better if he just stayed a beast because of her associations with that beauty. The two most beautiful Disney villains of all time are the first two. The Queen in Snow White and the Queen in Sleeping Beauty. Male or Maleficent, the, she was drawn to be—now she has horns, but her face was drawn to be attractive. And so was the Queen in Snow White. In fact, it was arguable whether or not the queen was better looking than Snow White when it first came out in the 30s. I think it was the 30s, right? So, but that's not true anymore. You look at all the new villains that Disney has created in the last 20 years, they're all ugly, every one of them. The only time they play on this theme at all is in, obviously, with Quasimodo and the Hunchback of Notre Dame. But the other, who is, is it, but the villain in a Hunchback of Notre Dame is ugly, Frollo. And the other hero is the sun god, right? He's a super handsome guy. Also, all the good people are good-looking, all the bad people are ugly, right? And fat, mostly. And old. Fat, old, and ugly, you're evil. Good-looking, thin, and beautiful, you must be good. And that's the world my—therefore, my five-year-old now lives in that world. That's how she interprets film. My seven-year-old is starting to pick up on the fact that not all appearances are really true. And so you—and sometimes good characters are mean in, in a way— or they do things you don't really understand because they are forced morally to tell the truth or something. And so it, it doesn't, but, but an evil person will always flatter. And so when somebody's really nice to you, actually, when you, if you watch a scene in your life, somebody flatters you, what do you go? Oh, thank you very much. That's absolutely true. You, but you just, all you gotta do is go down to the theater and pay $27 to watch a movie, and you know that the flattering person is evil. <laughs> is that funny? I, yeah, people flatter me. I go, oh, that's so true, right? But I go down to the movies and I see somebody flatter somebody. I go, oh, that person must be a villain. And they are. There's a, does anybody, did anybody like Scrubs when it was on TV? Okay, nobody. Okay, great. Um, so my wife and I were huge Scrubs fans. And the first episode of Scrubs is um, this guy, the main character, JD, comes in and there's two main doctors that run the hospital. There's Dr. Kelso and there's Dr. Cox. Um, Kelso and Cox. And um, he goes in, and Dr. Kelso was so nice. He's like, oh. And he calls him Sport, and always calls him by his name, and all that. And um, Dr. Cox is really mean. He's just like, you're a waste of life, and all that kind of thing. Um, but at, at the very end of the episode, the last scene is he's, he's kind of walking around, and Dr. Kelso's there, and Kelso wants him to do something. He's like, you know, can I take a break? And he's like, sure, Sport. In fact, you look tired. Why don't you go on home? And, and JD goes, oh, well, thanks. He's like, Dr. Dorian, do you not realize you're nothing but a big pair of scrubs to me? Why don't you go home and never— I mean, just like reads in the right— and you're like, whoa. And so J.D. walks away from him, and this is, this is what the voice in his head in the show, he said, if he's the bad guy, then who's the good guy? 
and there's this coat, and he runs over, and Dr. Cox sort of makes him do his first real procedure. And he walks away, and he realizes that the whole time he thought Kelso was the good guy, and Cox was the bad guy. But Cox actually empowered him and made a doctor out of him. Kelso was just using him. The only reason he knew his name is because he wrote it on his clipboard. So he could pretend to know it. And you will be tempted and we will be tempted when we read the Bible and we read God's hard words and we read Jesus' hard words and we read the hard words of the Bible, we will be tempted over and over and over again to take offense, to be infuriated, to not be terrified because how could anybody, any sane person talk this way and all these kinds of things. But what I'm telling you is that God's prophecies are self-defeating, are meant to be self-defeating prophecies, not self-fulfilling prophecies. Every hard thing Jesus says, he says for your good, even when he says it like this. And the themes of the parables are to differentiate who is who based on how they will listen. Because as Blaise Pascal said, he said, there's enough light for people who want to believe and enough darkness for those of a contrary disposition. The challenge in Mark 4 is not, doesn't have anything to do with seeds. It has to do with what sort of listener are you? So let me leave you with this. What sort of listener are you? Are you a self-justifying listener that takes offense at Jesus but not offense at yourself? Or are you the kind of listener that has believed the gospel, wants to be in the inner circle of Jesus teaching about the secrets of the kingdom, how it works out in your life, apply them and work them out so that you can really be a disciple, so that you can see things as they are, so that you can have your mind reopened and awakened to the things of God as they are so that your salvation can come to fruit. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would, you would aid us by your spirit like you say in scripture you do. You would aid us to see what we, what we need to see. We pray that the places where we're darkened in our thinking or self-justified are just nuts, that you would help us come to terms with it and that we would listen the way Jesus has called us to listen. That when he says, those who have ears to hear, let them hear that we would be people who have ears to hear and hear. Teach us the secrets of the kingdom, Father, so that we can be as fruitful as possible. So that when you look at us, we would actually end up being those who in your eyes produce 30, 60, or 100 times what you sowed in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you rise and